there's not that stigma that exists around mental health where people fear talking about it and leaders think that it's this weakness. But when someone is willing to open up and be vulnerable and put their stories and their experience in the trust of your hands, as a sales leader, you should be so grateful because you know exactly how to help and support that person going forward versus someone that's saying, I'm fine, I have no issues, macho. <laughs> that is way, way more difficult to manage on an ongoing basis versus someone that says, hey, I'm really anxious today, or I haven't slept well, or this happened and I need your help. And having those conversations can help support and resolve those issues from impacting performance over the long term. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was Jeff Risley. Jeff is the founder of the Sales Health Alliance, and he's the author of a new ebook, The Guide to Better Mental Health and Sales, 220 Strategies to Improve Sales Performance Through Better Mental Health. In our conversation today, we talk about Jeff's new ebook and dig into just a few of the 220 strategies that he spells out to improve your sales performance without sacrificing your mental well-being. We talk about the power of intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation, including we touch on research that has shown that the quality of performance, creativity, and learning tends to decline significantly when people are extrinsically motivated, such as motivated by cash. We dive into the whole work hard and play hard mentality and the problem with slack and the dangers of always being on, and perhaps why sales professionals need an off-season, just like professional athletes. We also get into the questions you should ask as a candidate for a job opening to determine whether the hiring company provides the kind of supportive sales environment that enables sellers to thrive and succeed. So we get into all this and much, much more, but before we get to Jeff, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it if you could leave us a review, give us your feedback about how we're doing. So thank you. All right, let's jump into it. Jeff, welcome back to the show. Good to be back, Andy. It's always a pleasure joining your uh, your podcast and chatting everything sales and mental health with you. Yeah, it is indeed. It is indeed. So um, yeah, you just, about your third time on the show, which is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, we're going to talk about your, your ebook that you published which I enjoyed. It's called The Guide to Mental Health, Better Mental Health and Sales, 220 Strategies to Improve Sales Performance Through Better Mental Health. So basically a strategy for every day of the year. Yeah, yeah, I think it was the way I kind of structured it. And, and when I did my, my rough calculations, there's really essentially 220 selling days in the year. When mm-hmm. you start to factor in vacation, time off, those random things that pull you away from the office, whether it's dentist appointments or doctor's appointments and wellness days is another big thing. So yeah, there's roughly 220 selling days in a year. And um, I guess I've been talking about mental health and sales for the last almost three years now. And the the biggest thing that I, I noticed is a lot of salespeople just really want that actionable thing that they can do on a regular basis or learn about on a daily basis. And really feed into how do you have more she answered the question of how do you have more consistent conversations about mental health mm-hmm. and sales as as a team so i wanted to create a guide to hopefully help solve that challenge yeah and it's it's yeah not necessarily a book you read from start to finish um you can sort of pick and choose because again you sort of laid out as you said sort of you know one strategy per selling day of the year but um it just sort of struck me it's like okay well Actually, before we talk to the book, let me digress for a second. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, we're going through, everybody's heard about the Great Resignation and, and uh, you know, shortage of skilled and talented employees in the workforce across all sorts of different fields. But uh, I have to admit, you were one of the first ones I heard that term from, even before it sort of became mainstream. I mean, you had an article you had written about, hey, we're going to see this this wave of sellers just decide enough is enough mm-hmm. yeah it's it's really interesting to see what's what's going on here and and how organizations and companies and, and people are really navigating it and i think there's just this really i think the biggest thing that people are missing right now is that deep connection and that deep meaning 
to do more purposeful, more meaningful work. And I think that's why we're seeing a lot of people switch jobs. Um, obviously, some people are some of their decisions are being made for salary reasons. But I think at the core of a lot, a lot of this is people looking to find places and connect with companies that have clear under, clear understandings of their purpose and their vision and something that they can align with from to provide that meaning and fulfill that mattering instinct that we all have. Because at the end of the day, we all want to get to the end of our lives and say, hey, we were here and and we mattered. And I think the pandemic and COVID has really kind of brought that mattering instinct to the forefront for a lot of people to say, wow, I've been neglecting this for a very long time. Well, I, I would imagine the isolation sort of has accentuated that that feeling for many people. Mm-hmm. As you might have been able to cover up some of it if you're in the office every day with colleagues and <clears throat> you know, enjoying sort of that, I said the connection that comes from being in proximity to people, but yeah, when you're on your own, I imagine it got worse for many people. Yeah, like I'd, I'd say it was that, but I'd also say that I think a lot of there, um, uh, there's a lot of distractions to kind of keep that little voice inside of your head uh, at bay that you may not have necessarily had a chance to listen to when you're making good money or and you have the opportunity to you know hop in a plane and travel for from a sales standpoint or take mm-hmm. a really nice vacation or even attend sporting events and get together with friends and planning sort of the next get get together. There was all these things going on in people's lives to distract them from, well, what's my real purpose? What, what, what brings me joy? What, where is that meaning coming from? And I think a lot of people face that to realize, oh crap, the company and the vision that that I'm working towards, it's, it's not being met right now. So how do I find that? And how do I find these companies that are, are going to align with my values and my purpose? Yeah. I mean, I think it's people come to the conclusion of just like how much crap am I willing to put up with in order to, yeah, just get a paycheck. Yeah, for sure. And I think that one of the interesting things that is, is, is interesting, just as I see this kind of great resignation take place is during COVID and during the pandemic, the every, I guess, conversation that I had with a sales leader that was interested in doing something around kind of mental health or mindset or resilience training, every conversation started with the sales leader saying, if I'm feeling it, my team must be feeling it as well. Mm. That's how every single one started. Mm-hmm. And it was as if it kind of f- creeped up to them, the VPs of sales, and they're like, oh my God, like this is this is absolutely awful. Like I need to do something. And it's been interesting over the last sort of couple months and as, as things have returned to a semi-normal type of situation, what I'm seeing is there's less leaders that are saying that and the one there's more there's there's kind of two groups there's ones that are like i'm not feeling it anymore so maybe the problem doesn't exist and it's just kind of this silent problem that's going back to how it's chewing away at people and then i'm seeing sales leaders who are like wow that was a really crazy time i saw the benefit in what i had to learn and what i had to get through and whether it was just implementing for myself like a daily meditation Mm -hmm. practice i'm seeing the benefit now pay off in a semi-normal world, I see the, the value of the stuff. Let's keep going. Let's keep investing into it. So there's really two groups where it was like, let's sweep it under the rug. Like it's not an issue anymore. And there's other ones that have had to change and adapt and are now seeing the really real value of this stuff in a less chaotic world. Yeah. I mean, so if you had to estimate sort of a percentage breakdown between those who think, uh, you know, this happened, but back to back to the way we were, Versus those that have some sort of lasting awareness of the fact that change needs to be made. How would you estimate that? Yeah, it's uh, it's not it's not in the in the, it's definitely no not anywhere close to a fifty fifty split by any means. Right, right. <laughs> I would say it's more closer to a ten to fifteen percent of sales leaders are sort of now more aware and actively thinking about this problem more, and mm-hmm. versus before when it was a 1% type of situation. So yeah. it's progress. I can, I always like to anchor my optimism on the kind of, on the progress that I'm seeing. And there, there is progress around this conversation being made, which is, which is really exciting. Yeah. I mean, some change, even small is better than no change at all. Mm-hmm. So For sure. yeah, change, change takes time, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's, well, I just, 
change has to start from the top. And certainly, I think it actually change really comes from both directions. But but I think unless leadership is embracing the fact that there is a difference and that the way that we've been managing sellers, the way we've been trying to motivate sellers, as you talk about in your ebook, um, the way we, we work with the cultures we set, unless there's some fundamental change coming from the top, then it's very hard. We're only going to get this sort of very small incremental change. And I think, you know, this will continue to be, I think it's a growing problem in sales. Um, not just because of COVID, but I think in general, this idea of people being fair, somewhat feeling isolated and alienated from what they're doing is um, going to keep on happening, maybe in a greater degree. Yeah, well, the, the, the rules of the game right now and the structure of the uh, the way a sales organization is set up is 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 fundamentally broken. Like there's all of the research around. I don't know if we talked about this last time, but all of the research around extrinsic versus in, intrinsic motivation. Right. Yeah, let's get into it because that was one of your early on strategies in your book. Uh, this idea of intrinsic versus extrinsic. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this, uh, a lot of research around it, the, I can't remember the name of the book. The book is, um, rewards and punishments. And it has all of this amazing data and all of this research from the last 67 years, 60 to 70 years around, um, rewards and punishments and extrinsic motivation. And, and just briefly before you go on, so the book was Rewards and Punishment. Who is that by? Uh, Alfie Cohn. But it's it's a very dense read. It's one of those kind of like uh, late 90s reads where the text is very dense. It's very research heavy. Uh, so it takes a while to get through. So I've tried to kind of pull out the key snippets in there. But everything that they talk about is the way we, the more you extrinsically motivate someone, the less intrinsically motivated they become. So extrinsic motivation is anything around like a reward or punishment. You do mm-hmm. this and you get X. And the more you do that, the less willing they're going to want to do that going forward. So as a result, you have to keep providing more rewards on an ongoing basis and bigger rewards to make that person want to continually do that over and over and over again. And a good example they used from the book was they took kids from school, for example, there was an experiment and they took kids who really loved painting pictures and they did it no matter what. They just wanted to paint and kept creating. Mm-hmm. And then the experimenters came in and they said, well, what we're going to do is we're going to experiment with the extrinsic motivation. And anytime the kid painted a picture, we're going to give them a gold star. And they did this for an ongoing period of time. And what they saw was this behavior that kids were intrinsically motivated to do simply something they wanted to do for for no good reason other than it brought them joy by the end of this period in this experimentation they no longer wanted to paint the picture unless mm-hmm. they were getting the gold star and you see a very similar situation happening within sales where the commissions need to get higher the the the, the incentives the rewards we're, we're in this position where why is sales not enjoyable why are people not intrinsically motivated to want to connect want to genuinely help people i think this is a, t- this is a huge topic of your book too coming at worse where people well, sorry i think ahead. they i'm sorry go ahead no as i was going to say it's a, it was a, a great kind of por- portion of your book as well where you talk about how much meaning there is in kind of building that connection and that understanding to want to genuinely help someone but I feel like when we, or, or I, this research is saying, when we're in this situation where we're intrin- extrinsically motivated consistently, that empathy starts to go away. And we mm-hmm. have to be consistently be given these rewards and punishments to want to do tasks that we should be in, genuinely motivated to do in, on, in the first place. Yeah. And I, I thank you for bringing up my, my new book, which is coming out, uh, Sell Without Selling Out. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that there's a couple issues in there to talk about that sort of relate to this is one is also been studies and Charles Duhigg has talked about this in his books. Um, was it bigger, faster, stronger, or I forget what the, the exact title was, but, but it was, it was made, that's the Olympic, uh, Olympic motto, but um, talking about the importance of giving people agency and the choices they make about, about their lives. And I think for many sellers, you know, this, this burnout that we're seeing 
comes from this, this sort of inability, feeling they're unable to really control how they go about their work. And, and I think this is, you know, this is related somewhat <laughs> because it's, uh, their motivations might be a little bit different, right? What motivates them in, in doing work a certain way that aligns with their values and their characters might be a little different than perhaps the culture that's been set up. And when they feel this, this agency to, to act with some sort some degree of autonomy is taken away, it's problematic for people. Mm-hmm. And we try to sort of compensate to some degree, I believe, through our reward system where we reward uh, you know, sort of bad behavior. So what? So to, to that point, what are your thoughts on? Um, because what I'm seeing is I think that we're moving into in a position, and I think it started with books like Predictable Revenue, where we're trying to essentially engineer emotion out of sales, and we're trying to build this robotic process to a mm. point where the guardrails are so so strong that. It's that alienation that we felt in the early 1900s while working on on an assembly line where there's the templates, there's the sequences, everything is on these guardrails that Mm -hmm. without being able to find that meaning and be creative, we're, like you said, we are burning out because we need to be emotionally connected to our work if we want to push through kind of the adversity and the rejection that we're facing on a regular basis. Yeah, it it certainly hasn't helped, right? I think it's accentuated certain trends that that uh, perhaps were in motion anyway. But yeah, I mean, it's it's um, to my mind, it's a system that's sort of geared for yeah, a certain set of behaviors that for a lot of people just you know they can't they can't operate in that environment for for very long. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, it's all about more like at the end of the day, oftentimes the way some companies implement and many companies implement it, it's, it's like playing the odds, right? Yeah. You know, where it's not really, you're not really engaged anymore because you're just playing the odds yeah. that if you do enough of a certain type of thing, you'll get a certain outcome. And the fact that the outcome isn't optimized, the fact that, uh, you know, it's not very satisfying for the people who are oftentimes are involved with it seems to be a secondary consideration. And I think we're seeing, uh, if I'm just sort of have my finger on the pulse a little bit of people writing and talking more and more about how maybe we've exhausted this model and here's, here's what the impacts have been. There's got to be something better. Totally. You're, you're, you're absolutely right. I think we, we are in a position where I think we are going to evolve and change the way that, that, that we are selling. I think the biggest thing for me that was that was really interesting, just in the way that kind of we perceive and 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 how our brains really work. One of the biggest learnings for me to understand this topic was every given second. There's research that have been done. We we're we we're, we're we're taking in any from two to ten million bits of information. So through our senses, through what we're feeling. Mm-hmm. So that's why if I say right now, you're probably not feeling your feet on the ground right now. But now that I say that, you're feeling all the sensations of your feet on the ground. Like that was always there, sure. part of that 10 right. million bits. Right. And that's getting that information is getting compressed down into essentially 126 bits of information every single second. So you have this very tiny flashlight, this window of attention. And where you're pointing that window of attention is having a direct impact on your mental health, your experience of the world around you. And how well you're performing. So if that small window, for example, that 126 bits, if any portion of that is being focused on thinking about that commission check, thinking about that manager that might yell at me, thinking about um, what will happen if you lose your job, these rewards and punishments, if any of that attention is focused on those things, it's going to impact your performance. And that's why all the data around extrinsic motivation makes so much sense because as soon as you're taking the focus off of the task at hand and doing it to the best of your ability, you're not performing it at an optimal level. And that's what sales leaders and organizations and teams really need to realize is that we need to maximize that tiny little window of attention and learn how to create psychologically safe environments where 
people feel safe making mistakes. There's less fear. There's less rewards. It's all about how do you deliver the best experience you possibly can to the buyers and the prospects and the clients exactly. that you're trying to help on a daily basis. Well, exactly. Right. And so one of the things I talk about in my book and, and I don't know if you've gotten that part yet, but yeah, I think what's really needed to help people is in large measure is just a different perspective about what your job is as a seller. You know, if in sort of classic sense, and I, you know, I speak in front of groups or <laughs> less so for doing it virtually, but when you're doing it live is, is, uh, you know, ask sellers, what's your job? And invariably, the majority of sellers will say, well, my job is to persuade or convince a buyer to purchase my product. Mm-hmm. And, and as I talk about in the book, well, actually, that's, that's not what your job is, right? To me, your job as a seller is to listen, to understand what's most important to someone else, what's most important to your buyer, and then help them achieve that, mm-hmm. Right. And so if you're entering your day every day thinking, well, my job is to go out and persuade somebody to buy my product, <laughs> as opposed to my job is to go out and listen to understand this other person, what's most important to them, and then help them get that, then you have two different sets of actions that take place. And one that's aligned sort of with who you are as a human, who your buyer is, and the experience they want to have with a seller. And the other is, you know buyers as a target of, of these efforts by by sellers what i call salesy actions that buyers universally detest totally you're you're, you're spot on and i think we both we both touch on this as well the, the it really comes back to the impact of curiosity and how important curiosity is not only to being able to understand and build that relationship and build that trust but being able to be curious about your inner world is and, and, and kind of have breathing exercises in place is a great way to find calm. And I think Kevin Dorsey talks about it all the time where it's the more you're curious, the more you put the attention on the experience that you're trying to create for yourself, the less you're putting attention on yourselves. If you're outwardly focused and trying to help and serve the people around you, that's why that servant mindset is so, so important. If you're trying to help and serve people around you. Your ego has nothing to get worked up about. If we go back to that idea of that 126 bits, if that little bit of attention and that flashlight is being shined on, in this case, how do I create a great experience for Andy? There's nothing left for me to focus on to get worked up about because I'm trying to just have a genuinely good conversation and understand you and everything about you and be present in the moment. And it's so, so important. That's why I love Jeff Goldblum. And I talk about him in the book where Jeff Goldblum, I don't know if you've seen his uh, his Disney Plus series. No, I I love Jeff Goldblum. I've not started that yet. I saw him on, I don't know, Jimmy Kimmel or one of the Stephen Colbert this last week. Yeah. Yeah. So his, uh, I can't remember the exact name of his, his series, but it's just Jeff Goldblum on Disney Plus. And he is just infectiously curious. He, mm-hmm. he has, he, he essentially has no awareness of, 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 who he is in the moments and he is just so he's like a child that's so curious and so passionate about just wanting to understand everything from someone talking about coffee to someone talking about jeans and at a, mm-hmm. at a gene festival and he just keeps asking questions tell me about that oh that's like why is that why why and it's just you just see these people who are just so taken back by his curiosity that you can't help but trust trust them because you're like, wow, this guy's only intention in this entire interaction is he's not some big celebrity. He genuinely actually wants to know about why my jeans are a certain color and how they get made. Well, but I see, I'll take that a step further. And this is a distinction I make in my book, which is I, I would say he doesn't want to know. He wants to understand. 100%. I would agree 100%. And to me, understanding is a step beyond knowing. <laughs> you know, it's easy to collect information and not really understand the context and why it's important to someone. And, and I think this is the thing that, that, uh, you know, same thing was like Anthony Bourdain and, you know, with his shows is that his travelogues is, you know, he wanted to understand. And, and this is the thing we have to get to as sellers is that it's not just enough to, to ask questions. You need to keep asking questions till you understand <laughs> what's really important to the people you're talking to and why it's important to them and who it's important to. And oftentimes we stop and then it just becomes 
scripted and wrote. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. There's just that level of it's like peeling back that layer of an onion or, or I don't know if that's a, the right example, but just getting. <laughs> well, it's one we use oftentimes. <laughs> getting getting to the middle. And when I, when I was selling consistently, there was always this question sales, sales people ask. It was like, you know, what's the biggest challenge you're having right now with X or what have you? And I always just like to kind of take those questions one step further and just say like, well, you said you're having trouble with X, Y, and Z. Like, let's pause for a second. Like, how does that impact you specifically in mm-hmm. your life and in your data? Like, don't worry about the what's happening in your world. And exactly. I found like that question and really getting to understand and wanting to know what that person was thinking, feeling, and doing as a result of what was happening in the world was critical. And being able to understand what that uncertainty, that anxiety, that fear that person was feeling and not using it to using it against them to manipulate them into buying a product because I genuinely wanted to help relieve that person of those uncomfortable feelings because I know how terrible those can be if you're experiencing it on a regular basis. Yeah. Well, and then what happens when you ask these questions is, is, and I think this is, again, a, a step that sellers are trained and coached not to take, which is to go this extra mile to truly understand is because we really don't understand, I like to say, I don't really understand empathy. And so, you know, to me, and there's various forms of empathy, and I talk about this in my book as well, is it's not enough just to know how someone feels and be empathetic for that. You have to take it a step further to understand why they feel the way they do. Mm. If we want to help someone, a buyer, address a certain set of challenges, help them understand perhaps better the challenges they face and the outcomes potentially they could achieve, we have to go that extra mile. Yeah. It's not just, you know, hey, I, that must feel horrible. It's like, well, <laughs> yeah, let's dig into that. What is the impact of that when you can't do X, Y, Z, as you talked about? You know, we keep asking those types of questions. You know, quantify what this impact is for me. Then you start to understand the why. Yeah. And then, then you have something you can act with. Yeah. And building off that, the way sort of, I, I think we both kind of talk about empathy and what like there's like three kind of sides, and I think kind of the, to add a little bit color, a little bit more color to that is my understanding of empathy is there's really two pieces. Is there's um, there's cognitive empathy, which is being what able, I just talked about exactly being able to think and 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 understand that oh you're having a problem with X Y Z. And I think, like you said, most sellers stop there. And I think the piece that they're missing is effective empathy, which is where they're actually feeling the challenges that they're facing on a regular basis and the emotions that are tied to them, which is which is why I think part of a really good onboarding process for any kind of company to implement is, if possible, obviously it's not going to be possible in every situation, but how do you get the, that salesperson to actually work a day in the life or a few days in the life of what their prospects are going through without mm. their product. That's why I think HubSpot's really cool. I love HubSpot. I think part of their onboarding program, I think it was in the, the, the growth acceleration formula book, they talk about it, how part of their onboarding is yep. getting salespeople familiar, familiar with building a website and a blog using HubSpot's mm-hmm. tools versus yep. without. And that's a really good exercise because as soon as you can start to relate to the challenges that someone has on a daily basis, you stretch that second piece of empathy, that effective empathy piece, which is missing. And without it, there's just a lot of fake empathy going around where you're saying, yeah, I understand that, but you're not feeling it. So it's not, it's not being empathetic. Yeah. Yeah. There's a great book to read called Against Empathy by Paul Bloom. Um, anybody's interested yeah, it gets into the various types of, of empathy. Um, you know, you'd, in the, the book, you talk, your book, you talk about um, intrinsic motivation being killed when people feel one of sort of five things. And I thought it was interesting because they all, they, uh, all the five things show up in sales pretty frequently. Um, <laughs> one is, you know, intrinsic motivation somebody has is killed when they feel threatened, um, which seems to be, Again, sort of a, a common common thread throughout sales is people feel their work, you know, their standing at work is threatened, their job is under threat. Uh, and I I remember one time early in my career working for the CEO who 
a startup, but it has grown into a big company. It was en route to doing that at the time. And he just said, you know, I can't imagine working in an environment where salespeople feel like they have a sword hanging over their head every day of the week. But that's, you know, a huge exception. Yeah. Like it's, it's just, it seems like it's par for the course when you have that quota hanging over your head and the, that fear is just, it just shuts down. Like if you want to think about what happens with when that fear center in our brain is really overly active, the part that's shut, shutting down as a result of becoming as your, your arousal state is going higher and higher. That flashlight is turning on all about you. You're focused on only serving yourself. And as a result, it becomes very, very hard to create that experience that's actually going to drive better performance and help your buyers. So it's impossible to be empathetic when, if, if you use your example of a sword, pretty sure you're not going to be caring about the person next to you if you see a sword hanging over, <laughs> over your head on a daily basis. Yeah, and it's it doesn't mean people can't be held accountable for performance because fundamentally that's what sales is about. But I mean, there are lots of professions out there that, uh, yeah, accountability is part of it of your, for, you know, accountability for performance, but you can do it in a way that, that again, people aren't as stressed as we seem to make sellers. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's, it comes down to committing to, I think we're losing some of the sales salespeople that I'm, or salespeople just in general, maybe this is a bad statement, but I just see that, um, maybe this isn't true, but I see that we're moving away from a situation where we're really treating sales as a craft and really Mm -hmm. kind of looking at this as not as a career to make money, but as a craft like baking or art, any kind of like, paint and any, any kind of like art like you something mm. that requires consistent dedication and discipline to get better at and invest the practice to understand that you know you got to get those repetitions in if you want to get better at your craft as opposed to something that you're just in to to make money yeah well, i think for me it's the big issue and again this address in my book is is along those lines it's we've entered a period gradually over the last couple decades in sales where I believe that autonomy has been taken away from sellers. The ability to experiment and to come up with a way of selling that's unique to themselves because they are unique beings, right? No one is, they're not cookie cutters, um, images of one another, clones of one another. Yeah, everybody has their own strengths, their own unique ways of looking at the world, receiving information, processing information, connecting with human, other humans, and so on. And it's part of this, you talked about earlier, is just sort of this move to sort of make sales an assembly line type function. That autonomy has been taken away from people. Mm-hmm. And, and to me, this is, this is sort of the, the most important issue I think in many respects in terms of having people feel intrinsically motivated is, is give people I said, more agency over the choices they make about how they sell. Doesn't mean they're not held accountable, mm-hmm. but they have a framework that you create that you want people you know, to sell within, but then let people figure it out. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, you, you say, you know, one of the killers of intrinsic motivation is being ordered around well, I mean, that's, that comes from managers that say, well, I know how to do this better than you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I've only, in my career, I've only worked for one. I've worked for some great managers, but I would say only one of them really knew how to sell better than I did. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. But I, so it wasn't they were ordering me, is they worked with me in order to help me get better. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's important to for that to exist as well, is there needs to be that that safety to be able to make failure to, to make mistakes, to fail, to uh, sort of ad- adapt and grow through trying new things that are not always going to work. And it's, it's interesting. I really love Brené Brown's framework for, for hope. Cause I feel like this hope is something where a lot of, there's a lot of salespeople that can feel hopeless from, from time to time. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. the, the three things that she talks about 
that needs to be included if you're going to create hope for someone is there needs to be a goal, which is clearly it's which is well defined within sales. Right. There needs to be a path. So there's a sales process. You're all set on path. And the third thing, to your point, that she says needs to happen is there needs to be agency. And yep. you need to be able to control how you navigate that path and make adaptations, change that path to get to that goal and find your way up the mountain. But without agency, you're just, to your point, you're feeling hopeless, you're feeling helpless. And that is obviously not a good situation to be in from a mental health standpoint where you feel hopeless and no control over your career. Well, that's right. I mean, without that agency, yes, when you, things get tough, what, what can you turn to to try to make a difference, to try to make a change? Mm-hmm. You know, if you have no control over, over you know, if, if the environment you're in is, you know, it's just closely measured, it's all about the KPIs, and it's not about you helping your buyer achieve a certain outcome. Um, and how you, we can help you get better, how we can help you become the best version of yourself, then yeah, when things get hard, what's the way out? And the people will feel helpless. Yeah. Yeah. And hope is, hope is just, a, a, there's so much research around hope and how it was, it plays such a critical component on resilience. And when you face adversity, being able to push through, if you, if there's no hope, then you're going to have a very t- difficult time navigating those situations, especially yeah. when you're facing constant rejection and deals falling through or missing your target. Like there needs to be some element of hope to get those dopamine engines firing again to mm-hmm. keep you motivated. One of the other things I want to talk about, because we could spend the day just talking about these five things that kill intrinsic motivation. But one of my real bugaboos is, is the fifth one you had, which is... Intrinsic motivation is killed when people are made to compete against other people. And I just, I thought, okay, sales is a competitive business anyway, right? Every day, it's, you're not competing necessarily, the biggest competition is necessarily against your competitors, it's against yourself, right? Mm-hmm. To get yourself to go out there and, and do the things that need to be done because, you know, for most people, selling sort of fundamentally an unnatural act. Um, so whoever thought that adding a layer of gamification to sales, yet another level of competition was a good idea. Well, I think it's even a worse idea when you start to, when you start to try to loop it under the definition or label of, of a team at the same time, because I think about it, I'm a huge basketball fan and I've written about this before and it's it's in, it's in the book too, but if you think about any basketball team or any sports team and you think about competition, they're competing against their competitors and another team. They're not com- succeeding when they're competing against themselves. And that's where sales has it backwards right now. So if you think about the Los Angeles Lakers, for example, it's as if the coach or the manager is saying, LeBron, you need to go at 25 points tonight. Anthony Davis, you need to get 25 points today. T- today, Russell Westbrook, you have to go get 25 points today. And say, if any of you don't get those points, we're going to place you on a pip or you're going to get fired. And if you think about what happens at the end of that game or the end of that month, if that team is behind target or they're about to lose the game, what do you think they're going to do? Are they going to sacrifice and make the move and the best play in the best interest of the team that's going to help them win? Or are they going to be in the situation where they're only trying to serve themselves and get their protect themselves sort of that sword over the head example that we talked about Mm -hmm. and in any situation that's that fear creeping back into play that's that individual individualistic mindset that team isn't going to cooperate they're not going to compete at a high level because they're only going to be in it to serve themselves and that's where competition it's like that internal competition of competing against each other but at the same time trying to pretend and expect that salespeople will also want to collaborate and work together. It's structurally just not set up to create the type of behavior and empathy and connect and connection that you need for peak performance. It's just backwards. Yeah. Unfortunately, fortunately hearing less of it, um, over the last couple of years, but you still, it's, it's, it's still not gone yet. Um, 
the other thing, no, well, there's lots of things I want to talk about, but uh, don't have unlimited time. But um, you talked about questions that you as a candidate should ask as an, in an interview in terms of what potential employer does to support teams' mental health and so on. Is, I wanted to go through that because um, they're great questions, mm-hmm. but also the, my first imp- impression on reading them was, yeah, take a little bit of guts to ask these questions in an interview. Yeah. To the typical hiring manager who would think, huh. You know, if you're asking questions about this, this is, you know, raises a red flag in their mind. But let's, let's talk about those. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't remember all of them off the top of my head, but I know one of the, I don't know if you have them, but I have. I, I do. I, I have them in front of me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, one was, uh, what did you do to support your team's mental health during COVID? Uh, what type of mental health training or services has the company invested in? How important do you think mental health and team well-being is to sales performance? How would you react if a sales rep request a mental health day and they were behind target? Things like that. Yeah, like I think they're they're important questions to ask because I think the answer, regardless of what happens, is going to be very telling to the situation that you're walking into. Because I have, I said before writing that, before I posted it, I've reached out to a few sales leaders that I know who are very forward thinking about this stuff and they really embrace the conversation. And I was like, what would you think if someone asked that? And they said, I'd hire them right away because they, there's one sales leader that I'll never forget, Ryan Hiscox, who, who's one of the best sales leaders that I've ever had as, as a rep. Mm-hmm. He talked about how he hired somebody um, who talked about his struggles with anxiety and talked about with what he was going through in the interview process. And Ryan didn't look at this as a situation where, oh, this is a problem candidate that shouldn't be, that I don't want on the team. He was relieved to say, oh my God, like I know exactly what I'm getting. And I, Mm -hmm. I know exactly how to work with this person because they're being so open and vulnerable with how they're feeling. So that's that, that there's that, that stigma that exists around mental health where, People fear talking about it and leaders think that it's this weakness. But when someone is willing to open up and be vulnerable and put their stories and their experience in the trust of your hands as a sales leader, you should be so grateful because you know exactly how to help and support that person going forward versus someone that's saying, I'm fine. I'm, I have macho, no issues. I can macho. Work through this. <laughs> yeah. Like that is way, way more difficult to manage on an ongoing basis versus someone that says, Hey, I'm really anxious today, or I haven't slept well, or you know this happened, and I need your help. And having those conversations can help support and resolve those those issues from getting impacting performance over the long term. So, um, yeah, to your point, I think it's absolutely critical to start asking these questions. Um, and if you're afraid, the way the way I'd kind of look at it is, if you ask any one of those questions and you're met with a blank stare or, or they shuffle, they, they, they try to dodge, the, conver- back. <laughs> they, they dodge <laughs> a conversation. You're saving yourself from exactly a bad situation going forward. Um, so it's better to better to do it now and find out versus get in there. And then all of a sudden say, be like, Oh crap, this is, this is a bad situation. I agree. hundred percent is, and um, Yeah. Admittedly, it's it's going to take a little, a little courage to ask one or two of these questions if it's a topic that's of concern to you. But to your point is ask it because better that you not get hired into an environment that's not supportive, that will be unsatisfactory for you, that that doesn't have the culture that that aligns with who you are as a human. Then, then yeah. Better yeah. not to get involved in the first place. Yeah, the better like, you know up front. To- totally. If I could ask one of the questions that I wrote about, it would be the one where, uh, th- where I say, you know, every, you know, I'm, every top performer misses at some point yep. during their sales career. Yep. I'm curious, what would ha- what ha- how are how are salespeople at this company treated when they miss target? And that is going to be a very telling question that people, sales leaders, hiring managers, are not going to be expecting. And they should know how they treat their salespeople. And 
if they're treated from a of putting on putting them on a pip or or they're kind of approaching it from a conversation where this person is weak and needs to go then um not 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 going to be a psychologically safe environment where they're where fear and where where learning through failure is going to be embraced or doing things where that's creative or autonomy a lot of those things are definitely not going to exist in an environment like that and isn't really an Part of the, the issue is you're a candidate and you're asking these questions is that oftentimes the hiring manager themselves is operating from a position of fear. Hmm. That the, the fears that they feel are those that they're transmitting into the people that work for them. And the issue really starts you know higher up the ladder. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's, uh, I, and again, I don't know how important it would be with the hiring manager specifically, but as as opposed to more so when you're in that kind of conversation where you'd be working with, having that question, the, the interview with that direct manager to really yeah. give them the gears to see how how they really think about this topic is is important. Yeah, well, I said increasingly something that's that's visible that you need to have the Feeling, I said, a little bit of courage, a little bit of of self advocacy to say, look, you know, this is this is my career as well. Yeah, don't don't take unnecessary chances. There are a lot of companies out there. It's just like there are a lot of lot of, uh, especially these days, there are a lot of companies out there that are looking for sellers. But just like there are always a lot of uh, potential prospects mm-hmm. out there. Um, you know, why waste your time on on one that's really not going to ever buy from you when you can disqualify them and move on to another one. Yeah, it's never been a better time to look for a job. That's that's for sure. Yeah, it certainly has created a lot of openings. Yeah. <laughs> so, do you think that uh, this again? I know you don't have we don't have a lot of research data on this, but so for the sellers that have just sort of said, "Yeah, I'm going to take a break," doing great sabbatical, as you you termed about it, termed it, are they coming back? It's so easy right now. It's so so easy right now to. If you have that courage and you have that itch to want to start your own thing, the opportunity is there to start a, if you're a top seller, to become a sales consultant, to start working with teams. There's so much opportunity in the market right now to help people. And one of the biggest mindset shifts I made three three years ago when I went out on my own was I just started to look around the world and I was like, I was looking at the restaurants. I was looking at the businesses, the products, the side, the sidewalks. I was like, man, like everything in this world has been built by ninety-five percent of it has been built by someone as capable or less capable than I am right now. Mm-hmm. And the only and the only difference was that person went out and said, "I'm going to try it and I'm going to give it a shot." And that was a huge shift for me to to, to make to say, really embrace this, seek discomfort, and embrace what could happen if I failed and when you put yourself in those situation where you, things are a little more uncertain than just cashing in on a nice paycheck, you just start to figure it out and you take chances and you grow and you learn. And I just looked at it as like, if I wasn't happy with the companies and the products in the world, like why am I living in a world and playing by their rules? Like, why don't I create my own sandbox and create my own, mm-hmm. the create my own world that I want to con- contribute to and, that was a huge driving force for the sales health lines and mental health and sales was I looked, I, I, it was such a critical topic for me and something that resonated with me throughout my entire sales career that I've just, I couldn't muster going back to an organization and I couldn't find an organization that was even forward thinking enough to embrace it. So I was like, screw it. Let's start this. Let's, let's take yep. on this beast. And yep. I think there's even three years ahead now, like where we are now, it's become easier to build a brand, easier to start a company, easier to get a website started that I think there's going to be a good portion of these top sellers that are like, screw it. Why make 15% or 20% or 30% of a deal when I can make a hundred percent of a deal and I can own 100% of my own company by starting my own business and start doing my own thing. Well, I think even with with sellers making the decision that that, and I think we're going to see more of this. We're seeing just a little bit of it now, but we'll see more. Is is why why does a salesperson have to work for a company? 
Yeah, yeah. Why, why, why couldn't you as a, whether you want to call it a consultant or yeah, a sales agent or whatever is, yeah, represent two or three companies at once. And I think more companies are going to come to the realization that maybe they don't need to have, you know, this fixed cost of a big sales team uh, that they can actually get the job done with sort of like, I know, like the professional sports model, you know, people, mm-hmm. they signed a contracts for a period of time. Yeah. And uh, the companies have to bid on, on the, the services, the, the top sellers. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's a, a really cool model to explore. I, I would, I know, uh, we don't have too much time. One of the things that I'm just so excited about that I'm, I'm seeing more and more is I love to see that more and more universities and colleges are embracing sales into mm-hmm. their, yep. into like an academic program that people can go through. I think that's going to be huge just in sales as in general to have the opportunity to kind of shift that mindset to this is an actual career and this is a craft and something that can develop and get better. I think that's going to make a huge difference in the long run once sales programs are accepted and adapted um, at the higher education model. I think it's going to mm-hmm. be so it's going to be awesome. Yeah, it's definitely been a lot of growth in that. Certainly in the US, I imagine perhaps sounds like in Canada as well and and uh, yeah, some really good programs out there that are turning out graduates who are perhaps more mentally prepared for what they're going to encounter when they enter the actual workforce. Mm-hmm. For sure. So, all right, well Jeff as always, a pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Andy. Again, it's always great coming back to chat with you, and um, appreciate you checking out the book. And really pumped uh, to continue reading your book, and excited oh, for the you. launch. So it's uh, it, it's all good stuff in there. Lots of action. Yeah, well, thank for you. People these. Yeah, we're we're uh, excited by it. So if people want to get your book, where can they do that? Yeah, so you just go to saleshealthalliance.com and then click under the training section. You'll see the guide to better mental. The guide to better mental health and sales located there to go ahead and download it. So perfect, easy. I encourage everybody to check it out. And Jeff, thank you. Thank you. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. I'm so grateful for your support of the show. And I want to thank my guest, Jeff Risley, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So thank you for your help with that. And as always, thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone.